This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello friends, so good to be back. Welcome to the podcast on which I invite very special guests for lunch over real top-class food and we chat while you get to listen in. Now, I've been trying to arrange lunch with my guest today for what feels like years and frankly has been, and what with one thing and another, well, it hasn't been possible until now. National Treasure is no exaggeration. He's an award-winning comedian, actor, presenter, author and director. He made his name initially with the comedy sketch show A Bit of Fry and Laurie. Jeeves and Worcester soon followed and his general melt in the hugely popular comedy series Blackadder. In preparation for this episode, I had a look at his international movie database list of credits, and it's one of the longest I've ever seen, 34 pages of A4 to be exact. He's hosted over 180 episodes of the TV panel show QI and has narrated all of the Harry Potter audiobooks. He's also the best-selling author of four novels, three volumes of autobiography, and has retold the Greek myths across three books, which have all been Sunday Times bestsellers. And really, I've only scratched the surface. It's the wondrous Stephen Fry. The best therapist I had was in Santa Barbara. In did, the did you get his number from John Cleese? <laughs> yes. What? You did. You got his number from John Cleese, didn't you? Yes, I did. <laughs> so I'm standing on German Street in London, St James's, which is the heart of fancy London's menswear. There's even a sculpture to Beau Brommel, the, the great fop, dressed up over there to my left. Stephen Fry lives in this area. I won't say exactly where, but he's very close. And I'm outside Wilton's, which is one of London's grandest restaurants. It's been here since, well, it's been in some form since 1742. Uh, it does great shellfish. It does great roasts. It does classic dishes. And I kind of felt that a, a classic restaurant like Wilton's and a classic man of letters like Stephen Fry were very suited to each other. I think we should go inside. Thank you. The self Hello, Jay. How are you, darling? What a pleasure to be here. I'm Thank feeling you. all moved because the waiters were all saying, Welcome home. To <laughs> this is Larvy. Hello, Larvy. Nice yeah. to see you. Do you like any water? Still for me, please. Thank you. And I'll have sparkling. You've made them with an aperitif, glass of champagne, bellini. I won't have a bellini, thanks. It's, uh, um, but uh, a glass of champagne would be nice. Thank you. Yeah. Me too. Thank you. <laughs> One of the reasons I chose this, you know, I know your sister quite well, and mm. she deals with your diary and everything, she deals with everything yeah. with your life, and said if it's in St James around, you could walk, and then I thought, what's the closest restaurant I could come up with? <laughs> I've been fascinated. What's it like to live right in the centre of town? 
It's just wonderful. For those who know London, Piccadilly is an east-west street that runs from Piccadilly Circus to Hyde Park Corner, essentially. And it used to be the area where they made um, roughs for Elizabethans who would go around their car, which were known as Piccadillys. And uh, that's how Piccadilly got its name. The north of it, towards the west, is what's known as Mayfair. And the south is what's known as St. James's. It goes down towards St. James's Park and includes the, the church, St. James's Piccadilly, the Wren Church, and St. James's Palace, of course, and all the royal residences. So it's, a, it's been a, a grand area of London for a long time, but it is fantastically central. I could throw a cricket ball from where I live and it would almost land in the middle of Soho. And, and so you've got the marvellous mixture of central and you've got the old-fashioned tie shops and shirt shops and things of... German Street and Savile Row and Fortnum Masons and is that, like your, that. is that your corner shop? It is. It's not the cheapest of uh, no, corner and, shops. No, you know, I know we're living at a time where everybody's purses are being, you know, uh, raided by price rises and inflation of the kind that I can't remember since the 70s when mm. I was growing up, you know. And, and to you know, speak grandly about these very expensive places in the West End, I can appreciate it's a, it's a bit tactless. So all I would say is that over the many years that I've lived here, I've enjoyed the strange mixture of a Soho life on the other side of Piccadilly, which is bars and drunkenness and crazy bohemian wackiness and in the earlier days even drug-fueled monstrosity of one kind or another while at the same time keeping one foot occasionally inside the tweedy areas of old-style England. You do know there's a Tesco Express just on Haymarket. I do, and I go to that very regularly, I promise. No, so it's lunch. Yes. You have a menu. Let's have a look. Oh, they're coming to show us things. Oh. So we get a bit of theatre. Just to let you know, it's special. We have these delicious Scottish langoustines. Oh, of course, we peel them for you, and we serve them cold with mayonnaise and lemon as a starter. Proper table side theatre, this. That is in. Oh, look! A scratch of pork for you, served with apple compote, madeira sauce, and cracking, of course. Good gracious. Thank you very much. Oh, heavens. Lovey is here. So, what do you fancy? I know that I'd love to start with the Scottish longest scenes with the, the mayonnaise, please. That would be absolutely gorgeous. Do you know, when, when I first came here, and I'm, I'm not sure when it stopped, but there used to be turtle soup. Oh. And there was a, a woman who reminded me of Rosa Klebb in, in uh, <laughs> From Russia With Love, the Lottie Lenya, you know, the sort of bun with a steel knitting needle thrust through it, whose only job, I could tell, she wore a tight white uniform, like someone who worked at a Swiss monkey gland sanatorium. And her one job was to come to the table and pour sherry into your turtle soup. Was it real turtle soup? I think, it it, mock? I think it was mock. I, I wouldn't have, even, even in those days when I was a We're not celebrating the, the no. butchering of turtles. Certainly not. Um, so I will, um, I think, have as a, as a main course grilled Dover sole, please. Spinach with it. I'd love spinach and some um, sauce tartare. Um, yeah. Any potatoes? Some boiled potatoes? Gratin? Yes, some boiled potatoes. I'll, I'll, I'll push the boat out because I'm with Jay. And I'll, st and I'll start with the secret smokehouse Scottish salmon. Thank you. And because I'm absolutely certain of its provenance, I'll have the mixed grill, please. How would you like it? Uh, medium rare, please. Medium rare. And can I have a gratin dauphinoise? Excellent. Thank, Thank you. Now, what I'm not going to do is the 
chronological biographical thing. Right. Because it's very well, I mean, it's, it's out It's there. a very well-trodden path. I'll, I'll do it in a line. <laughs> Grew up in East Anglia, went to boarding school, not comfortable in your own skin, not comfortable in your own sexuality, got into kleptomania, uh, stole some credit cards, went to prison, got into Cambridge. So, that, that's... <laughs> Thank goodness it whooshed past it, it, that it, far. It if past. only it had when I lived in no, I'm my sure. lived I'm experience. Just out of curiosity, um, your Wikipedia entry, is it correct or is it full of... Uh, you must have looked. I, I mean, years ago. I, looked, I remember once I, had a, I interviewed Jimmy Wales, the founder of Wikipedia, in a hotel in Washington when I was doing a documentary in America. And... Um, I was able to say to him then, because I looked myself up, it, it, mm. it, it, there was one of many schools that had been uh, expelled from that was included that I had actually never been to. And <laughs> I told him that, and he immediately set me up with an account and said, look, it's this simple. Well, you can just go in there. Yeah, and I'd always been rather afraid of having a Wikipedia account, because you read about <laughs> all these uh, kind of, um, I think they call it something like sock puppetry or something, don't they, where you... you, you Tend to be the person you're writing about, or yeah, something yeah. like that. I've always been aware of you as being sort of the generation ahead of me, coming yes. out of university, no, no, no. and by the sort of mid late eighties, I think you were in you were in the parental home. You came yes, home to our I, house we, in Harrow to see my parents. Claire and, and yeah. Des were always so nice to me, and I, I loved their company, and I always admired your mother. And I remember seeing you there when you were you, you were indeed the sort of a generation below. The one bit of the early story of you, which I've always found fascinating was that you were hired to write, or was it co-write the book for me and my girl? Yes, that's right. And that made you wealthy early on? It did. I was extraordinarily lucky. I, I'm not a showgirl, as you well, might say. Well, that's the thing. You're not in the world of musicals. No, not in the least. I can't compose, write, sing, dance, any of those things. But Richard Armitage, who was my agent, who, who ran a an agency called Noel Gay Artists. And Noel Gay was the nom de plume of his father, Reginald Armitage, um, and wrote a musical called Me and My Girl, which in the 1930s was an enormous hit. By the 80s, uh, Richard, the son of Noel Gay, asked if I would consider looking at this book, as they called it. Why you? I I mean, and I only say this because the 80s was actually a hotbed of musical theatre in Britain. It was, yeah. It's a very interesting point as to why me. I, I mean, I had written a play that had, was a comedy that had done well at Edinburgh and won an award, and uh, I'd written sketches for, with, for myself and um, with Hugh, Laurie and Emma Thompson, and we were beginning to make names for ourselves. But I think he just, he just went on a, a punt, really. At first, I was baffled by it all. It was a musical that owed nothing to Hollywood or Broadway, which is a very rare thing in the early There was 80s. a tradition of these 30s that exactly. came out of music hall and That's put together the all these... That's where it came from. That was its tradition. And so uh, once I sort of knew that, and once I was told that Robert Lindsay had expressed an interest in playing the lead, that, that gave me a real something to hang it on, because I'd seen Robert, like all my generation, I'd seen him in Citizen Smith and loved him, and by coincidence, I'd seen him play Hamlet at the Royal Exchange That's in perfect, Manchester. Perfect training. <laughs> well, it showed me that he had a heck of a range and that he wasn't afraid of anything, and that's a very wonderful thing. Um, so I, so I, you know, wrote it and then suggested Emma for Emma Thompson for the for the lead female role, and it went on. It was in, a huge hit. It was yeah, a huge hit here was. for years, and on Broadway, and on Broadway. Yeah, and yeah. then checks start coming through the door, and the, do you remember checks? I kind of miss checks. I know I miss checks. <laughs> <laughs> they were a very active way of, yeah. of being paid. 
Mm. Uh, here's the question. Let's hurry for a moment and let's accept that privilege and success and all that stuff is a joy and we should never, you know, regret it. Was there ever a moment when you thought that that much success and wealth early on was a pity or a shame or something yes. you regret? Yes. I, I mean, in reality, of course, I was thrilled to have money and to realise that I didn't have to worry about money anymore, having worried about it most of my life, as most people when they're young do, as mm. students and whatever. We've well, um, nicked quite a lot of it. I have the credit card for say. Stop it. Oh, God. I realised, looking back, when I was writing the Fry Chronicles in particular, but also my first uh, volume of, uh, uh, of autobiography, that my behaviour, once that money started coming to me, was you know, revealed a lot. For example, I had seven credit cards by about 1986. <laughs> I had Diners Club and, and American Express and, you know, they went from gold, you know, from silver to gold to platinum to black. I mean, clearly I you wanted... had a bit of a fetish for credit cards because you yeah, quite a lot of them. Precisely. And also I bought a country house and I bought, I had, at one point I had nine cars. What All was it with the credit? I mean, were you maxing them out or were you? No, I just, I, <laughs> looking back on it, I mean, I say this as a sort of joke. It's like I'm wearing this Garrett Club time, a member of goodness knows how many clubs around here. It's the Jewish boy who never believes he belongs. So back in the late 80s, I managed to get a gig writing features, a freelance for The Listener. Ah, fine magazine. Which I wrote for too. Well, indeed. Was that Russell or Alan? Who it was, was Alan. the It was Alan, Alan yeah. Corrin had taken over as the yeah. editor. I kind of like to picture myself there when this happened, but I, I certainly had reports of it, which was Alan having received your copy almost certainly by fax by yes. 1989. And the shout went up from his office, which was, bloody hell, he's Jewish. <laughs> it sounds absurd to use this phrase. You came out. Yes. Yep. In a column for the listener. It's such it a strange a position to be in because it's, it's a weird truth. That, I mean, there's so many things to unpick about it. There's the whole David Baddiel, Jews don't count thing about, and the recent Whoopi Goldberg, are we white or are we not white? And all this sort of thing. Oh, hang on, your, your, your start is arriving. Oh, right? fantastic. Let's well, get that on the To be well, continued. Then, oh, yeah, very, John Travolta, very soon. Very soon. Yep. Scottish language. Oh, that is gorgeous. Thank you. That would be lovely. Thank you. Thank you. Please, please. Gorgeous. It's going to be that kind of lovely. <laughs> so I've always been very proud and very pleased and I love my Jewish family. I've, uh, I've, it's your mother who, I've, I mean, it's being my very mother. specific, which means that you are yeah. actually... Although, funnily enough, I did recently, um, 23andMe, you know, the... the um, ancestry type uh, DNA uh, and I sent them my spittle mm. and I got back that I was 53% Ashkenazi Jewish so so it's the mother's side and, and, and their family those who survived the, the horrors of the uh, of the Second World War and the, and the Nazi occupation of Europe either mostly went to America or Israel but my grandfather to London and I loved it when they swooped down and came. I remember reading when I was young an E.M. Forster essay called On Jew Consciousness. He was writing, I think, in the late 20s, early 30s. He says, all around Europe, f fascists and others who believe in... And he then describes this weird cult of racial purity that was so big at the time. And he says, and let's think of the most famous family on earth. I would propose that it is the Saxe-Coburg family, the, the Windsors. Mm -hmm. And so let us take a leading member of that family, His Royal Highness, uh, the Prince of Wales, uh, who became Edward VIII and then Duke of Windsor. And as Forster says, 
I suspect even he cannot name his eight great-grandparents. You can probably name five of them, because they're very famous. They're mostly kings, queens, and princes. And if he can't, can you name your eight great-grandparents? And according to racial theorists, one of those happens to be Jewish, then you are a polluted, impure person. The, it, it, the sheer mathematical impossibility of everybody knowing who they supposedly are. And of course, he deliberately is holding back his wrath on moral grounds and just saying it's so stupid. This idea that we know what we are in, in racial terms, is, it, it's also meaningless. Have you experienced anti-Semitism at any point? I was visited when I lived in West Hampstead by a group of people who vet right-wing publications. They were a Jewish group and they said that they had read my name amongst others, like probably yours, Ben Elton's, you know. Congratulations. You know, exactly. They said, as you know, Jewish people are very good at looking after their own kind because they've had to be. Uh, They gave me advice on security and, and, you know, and said if we wanted to any more further lessons. It's a strange thing. I mean, I have so got used to... My various manoeuvres of getting myself mockery in before I can be mocked by others, or at least thinking I've done that, that when it does come, it is quite a shock. I remember once going to FA Cup in, in Wembley, and as I was walking in, there was this furious face suddenly loomed right in front of me. It was a skinhead. And you fucking poor fuck, you're not fucking getting you like that. And... I, f- I thought it was a joke at first, so I went, that's right, dear. And he went crazy, and he was going towards me, and his friends started to pull him back. And then other people said, go away, go away, go, go. And I realised that that person, his eyes were genuinely filled with hate, and he would have quite happily nutted me and stamped on my head. And, and that is a, it's a shock to, uh, you know, for many was people... Was it distressing? Oh. Yes, it was. I was kind of trembling for hours afterwards, just... And it was sort of innocent and pathetic of me because a lot of people live that sort of, they live in that fear of physical violence close, much closer to them uh, all their lives. And, and it's so rare for me that it really was a, a shock. It reminded me, there's a, a line in Le Carre, I think it's Smiley's People, where George Smiley is in Germany and he gets out of his rented Opel car and he walks along a canal to find a chase down a clue. Uh, and when he gets back, these kind of almost feral kids have surrounded his car. They've pulled the boot off it and folded it up and put it in the space where it was. And then one of them is leaning against the driver's side and Smiley, who's an old man by this time, and he sort of goes up and asks what the person wants and the person puts out their hand. And Smiley says, why do you want money? And he says, for looking after your car. And then there's this sentence. Smiley looked into the boy's eyes and could not see a single human instinct that he understood. And I remember thinking, yeah, that is, that is sort of all of our nightmares, isn't it? And on it goes. Thank Ooh. God you've got Dover Soul. And off here's the, the Dover Soul off the road. Yes, it's cowardly of me, but no, I... No, it's not. <laughs> May I would you like a touch of tartar sauce? Yes, I would. Thank you so much. That's beautiful. It is beautiful. 95, obviously, you do Cellmates. The, uh, <laughs> the Simon, Simon Gray, Gray play. The yeah. Simon Gray play about George Blake and has a breakdown and do a runner. 
As I say, I'm just glossing over the, the, the bits that the crowd, yeah. everybody knows. 1988, the first Simon Gray play you did, I think, which was The Common Pursuit. That's right. Which was about a bunch of undergraduates at, I can't remember if it was Oxford or Cambridge, but one of them. It was Cambridge, I'm was afraid. Cambridge. And it was a pretty good cast. It was you and Rick. Rick Mayle and John, John Sessions. Gordon, John Sessions, John Gordon Sinclair. That's right. And it was really um, in that classic sense of a play about here are a young, thrusting, ambitious undergraduates and what becomes of them. Yeah, exactly. Do you ever look back? We're now, you know, in the words of Alan Bennett, almost 40 years on. Yeah. Five years on. Funnily enough, when I was writing the, the book of Me and My Girl, I was actually in a production of 40 Years On at Chichester, the first revival of the Anna Bennett play, and that phrase, 40 Years On, is from a school hymn. 40 years on when afar and asunder parted are those who are with us today, when you look back and forgetfully wonder what you were like in your work and your play. And I do look back and forgetfully wonder what I was like in my work and my play. Um, and I think now I'm 64, I do feel more uh, connection with the past than I have felt for decades. I, I, I find when I'm falling off to sleep, I'm back at school, back at university, back in early flats and houses that I shared with Hugh Laurie and friends from university, for example, when we were starting out. First kind of weird jobs one was asked to do, little things, writing things, little radio advertising voiceovers and strange little jobs and how exciting it all was. You're, do you look back on, on the whole group of you and, and, and what became of you all? I do, funnily enough, I was um, talking to John Lahr on a... Um, on a Zoom yesterday, the... Um, John Lahr, the New Yorker writer. New Yorker writer. Son of... Burt Lahr. Burt Lahr, who played the lion in... Put him up. Put him up. Put him up. In, in the original. Uh, Wizard, Wizard of Oz. Oz. Yeah. Thank you. Because um, he's doing a, a big New Yorker article about Emma Thompson. Because it's a New Yorker article, it's long form. And so he was very keen to, to drill right down into my earliest memories of us as a group, and, uh, and Emma in particular, of course, and... And I can't recall what sort of face I put on myself in, of confidence. Because sometimes I will bump into someone and go, you won't remember me, but we were at university together or whatever. Uh, they'll give me their name and I go, oh, yeah, yes, we, we did a... You, weren't we in a play together in, the, in our second year or something? And they'll go, yes. And then they might say something like, I was also a bit in awe of you. And I would think, What? But I'm now too used to the idea of that and actually have the imagination to see that I might have been quite off-putting. I'm tall, I have a deep voice. I'd done prison, I'd done so many weird things before going to Cambridge. Fluent. fluent and apparently confident and, and certainly keen not to reveal my lack of confidence. Uh, and which we all are. We all try and mask our insecurities. And we forget that in masking them, we can sometimes project as rather... I like to think I never came over as arrogant or presumptuous or whatever the words are now that you mustn't be entitled and all the rest of it. I can certainly imagine that Hugh and I as a pair, because we fitted so extraordinarily together when we, from the first moment we met, and because Hugh was the president of the Footlights and I was, you know, very much his colleague, as we called each other jokingly, my colleague, anybody outside that nexus must have looked at it as an impenetrable sort of, oh, well, they, uh, you know, they decide what's funny, you know, so, because we would hold auditions, open auditions. For and so you would stand in judgment on anybody? Well, that's good, that's our job. We yeah. were on the Footlights committee and the Footlights was trying to get new material and new writers 
and new performers. God knows, I'm, um, I'm too much my mother's son ever to have been rude to anybody. And I suppose if I'm honest, looking back, some people might have thought, this guy, you know, he was born to be at Cambridge, he's natural, he doesn't seem to have any problem fitting in. I always looked as if I belonged, despite everything I've said about never feeling that I belonged, you know. Just kind of getting the game, being confident enough to speak to, you know, dons, the fellows of colleges, the academics, uh, on their own terms. And I don't know, it's, it's very odd. I, I, we were, above all, lucky, though. Game Pass. Yeah. I had an experience once with somebody who wanted to, um, like, role play, uh -huh. like, um, like with relative stuff. No. Yes. No. That's a and hard I couldn't. Pass. Man, I said, I said, um, they no. wanted. They first said, da like, dad, daddy, oh, and, and, and I said, um, well, that's not so bad. But um, so I suggested maybe, like, I said maybe the most I could do is uncle. <laughs> Okay, so that was just a snippet of an episode with actor and podcaster Justin Long. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and I'm telling you, you need to listen to the full episode on my podcast, Dinner's on Me. Over a meal at Pine and Crane in downtown LA, we get into his love story with Kate Bosworth, his career, and so much more. To listen, just search Dinner's on Me wherever you listen to podcasts. You did um, In the Psychiatrist Chair with Anthony Clare, I think 97. Yeah. And it's very interesting because you basically say that your fluency, your ability to talk to people, to have a conversation mm. with anyone in any form, and any take, it, in the end became problematic because it meant that people didn't believe you when you said you were struggling. Yes, that's absolutely right. I, that's certainly true. It's almost impossible or had been almost impossible for me to, to reveal anything other than the security and being in charge, partly because of those early successes and being so aware of how lucky I was. You know, you step from ah, a murky and troubled adolescence into a place like Cambridge and then get every single fruit hanging from every tree in that extraordinary place and therefore emerge into the world laden with opportunity and gifts of, sure. uh, of connections and then make it on you know you, your student show is put on television you're uh, then given a tv yeah. series and then you're given a musical that makes you a millionaire <laughs> straight away and then you want to say to people i'm really miserable it's so unfair i can't really cope with anything and they go piss off no one's going to be interested and you're aware of it and why should they be everything seemed so easy and to to say yes while that's true though i do hug myself and sob through the night a lot and i sometimes even feel close to not wanting to live anymore and that's a, that's a terrible thing to say and to say it in a blithe manner as i've just said it now seems absurd but all the all the understanding I've come to on the nature of mental therapy? health. Have yes, you, you've yes, had therapists of absolutely of all kinds. Yes, both, both the sort of very both CBT, the cognitive behavioural therapy. I, I almost and wonder whether 
your ability to talk fluently and have insight into yourself and all of that stuff, which you clearly do, mm. whether in the therapeutic environment becomes problematic because therapist is meant to go, come on, talk to me. Mm. The one thing you, Stephen Fry can fucking do is talk. Yeah. I actually, the, the, the best therapist I had was in Santa Barbara. In did, the did you get his number from John Cleese? <laughs> yes. What? You did. You got his number from John Cleese, didn't you? Yes, I did. <laughs> Certainly because John Cleese was living in Santa Barbara he, at he the did. time. I was living in, he very kindly lent me his house after my breakdown for, for, to just get yourself better for, you know, take as long as it takes. He was incredibly generous, he and his wife. And he also recommended this, uh, this therapist. And what was good about this therapist was that he was 100% Californian and therefore utterly... Um, almost like a like an innocent child when it came to the the speech patterns and references that I would make as as an English. It meant nothing to him. No. So he would just go, "Yeah, but how do you feel about? Yeah, how do you feel?" And I would say, "Well, of course, one wants to say that I, you know." And he's going, "No, no, 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 no. How do you feel?" And you go, "All right, I'll tell you what I fucking feel then." You know. So he really was, he peeled away all those accretions of education and understanding that I thought I had uh, to get to the real bone of it. And, and that was an important thing because that's what you need. You're now, um, and you've talked very happily about it, about being happier mm. and meeting Elliot, your husband. You've mm. been together for a, a good few years. Seven, seven years being married. Seven years. Seven years married and nine, ten years almost uh, yeah. together, yeah. What was that brilliant line Grayson Perry said to me? Uh, it was it was a friend of his had said when gay marriage came in said yeah it makes us all a bit straight now doesn't it <laughs> <laughs> there is that do you think in terms of emotional stability and who you are as pre and post yes i i, I really do and that's partly because Elliot himself, my husband, is, is such a, a sort of gentle and patient and a quiet person. So I'm interested in showbiz things. Um, uh, almost to the point where I'm going, well, hang on, there is some interest, surely, <laughs> to be had from this Oscar night party or whatever. And he'll go, well, if you want to go, let's go. If I imagine the, the opposite of someone who was actually anxious, oh, let's go, there's a premiere, or, ooh, there's this place opening, I would be exhausted and, and, and worried slightly. But it's so wonderful to know that uh, he regards my, you know, my job and um, what I do with a sort of interest and is proud and pleased when I do things that he likes and do well and he can see they make me happy but he's not in any way glamorized by the nature of you know fame and opportunity and 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 all those sort of things and that that gives a great stability I think to it it makes me much more relaxed about it all you've just used the word job well, yeah. What is your job? I don't know. That's a good question. That's why I sort of quickly said afterwards, the things I do. The things you do. Yeah, that's basically it. It's the things I do. I don't have a job in any sense, except the one in my own head. Um, and what's that? It's that every morning, every day, I must concentrate on doing something. I must work. Every time, I mean, usually I have enough to do. I'm so, you know, I've got, even in the period of, uh, of lockdown, I had, you know, I think I did 25 audiobooks, you know, and there's writing and various other things. And now I'm, I'm about to go to Iceland next week for a documentary and then to Mexico and California. And it's a marvellous thing. And I'm not having to arrange the flight myself. It's for a production. I go there to film. There's a call sheet ready for you. Here's your hotel. Do you like a call sheet? Oh, yes. I a well-written call yes, sheet. Yes, I a do. Thing. I love them. Every sort of filming job, and now indeed every podcast that you do, uh, the production 
prints out a, a list of, you know, which includes the location and the timing and the equipment and everything that needs to be um, put together for the day's shooting. And each day there's a call sheet. It just makes one feel one belongs to a group, to a team, to, you know, it's a, it's a great feeling. Belonging. Belonging. It's all about that. I wrote in uh, in the first autobiography, uh, Mohab is My Washpot, about there was, a, there was a whole section called Joining In. And from the very first at school, I was aware that there were the others who, who were good at British Bulldogs and good at rugby. And they all sort of seemed to know things and understand things that I was not really secure about and I felt an alien from. Like you hadn't got the memo, you hadn't yeah, given I hadn't the got manual. Them. Exactly. Part of me wanted desperately to join in, but the other part wanted to stand apart from. So it's being apart of and apart from. That is the nature of the 20th century anti-hero uh, in literature and movies and in everywhere is the figure who wants to belong and wants to stand apart. It's that tension between those two, which are both admirable things. Enemy of the people, the Ibsen, he stands strongest who stands most alone. Mm. You know, there's that feeling, I'm different, I'm separate. I'm not part of the tribe, the herd, the muddy rabble on the rugby field. Oh. So it sounds like, you know, for all the desire to belong, there is another standing proud yeah. at six foot Four, yeah, I mean, six or four, four, yeah, and a it's half. <laughs> both pathetically. literally and <laughs> metaphorically. Yeah. It's quite a comfortable place to be. It is, yeah. I, 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 the ultimate conceit in both senses of the artist is that their experience is probably the experience of other people. You have to be yes. arrogant enough to think that if I feel this when I'm alone in the bath or I'm trying to get to sleep or meeting a stranger. If I feel this mix of insecurities and this mix of contempt for those people and love for those and bewilderment here, if I feel them, they are a common human attribute. And that if I describe them either in comic terms, in a sketch or in some novel, then people will respond and understand because they feel that too. And they'll say, thank you, I feel that. But sometimes, you know, you realize you are actually not quite the same as other people. <laughs> you know, Thank you. This process of looking over someone's life, as mm. I do for this, what, what struck me is a desire to educate. Yeah. Mythos, mm. series on Greek mythology, which even got you a nice medal for the, which you played yes. in the Greek embassy. Yeah. Um, the latest yeah. podcast on the workings of the brain. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, on, no, that is very po- it, Are you... Educating people, or are you educating yourself? No, it's unquestionably that's my natural vocation. I think I, in the year between prison and university, the gap year, I I taught at a school, and when I went to to university, and having had such a turbulent adolescence, I did think that my destiny was to stay, stay in the cloisters and to grow tweed quietly in a corner. I was looking at us. <laughs> Shall we have? You a do dessert. Pudding. Yeah, go on. Yes, creme brulee, I think. Thank You're doing you. a creme brulee. I'm going to have one as well. Yeah. Because I'm not reviewing, so I can have exactly what I like. <laughs> you are, uh, I'm not sure whether you've already recorded it or you're going to, but you're going to play Cecil Rhodes. 
Oh, goodness, yes. Have I mean, you already done that? Or no, we haven't. And, and that's one of those projects that we hope will happen, but we can't be sure. Rhodes, for those who don't know, his name lived on for many decades in the name of the country that's now Zimbabwe, Rhodesia. But he really made his name as being the one of the founding fathers of De Beers and the, the, the diamond exploitation of Steep South Africa. Steep flood, it's fair to And, say. yeah, it was a symbol of everything to do with the late 19th century scramble for Africa and the colonialism. And he then gave a lot of his money uh, for these Rhodes scholarships, which were for Americans to go to Oxford. But the idea of taking such a part... Or was it just that the script was really well written, or you looked yeah, and thought, I, mean, I can do this well, really well? Yes, I mean, uh, yeah, big, uh, overblown <laughs> British figure. I'm not going to get the parts that, uh, you know, um, Timothy Shamalang and Lid Ding Dong is just turned down. So I might as well get used to the fact that I will get parts like this if, if I get any. I mean, actors play Hitler, for heaven's sake. Sorry, oh, you've just f- played Hitler. No, actors play Hitler, I mean. Yeah. And, and so they can certainly play Cecil Rhodes, but uh, it just reminded me of a story. Do you remember the film Valkyrie? Tom Cruise played... Uh, von Stauffenberg. Von Stauffenberg and the, uh, and the bomb plot. Well, David Bamber, who's a fine Shakespearean actor, people may remember him in the Colin Firth, Jennifer Ely, Pride and Prejudice. He yeah. played Mr. Collins brilliantly. Anyway, he arrived at... Berlin or, you know, Potsdam, wherever the hotel was, where they were shooting this film, Valkyrie, to do his role. And he arrived a bit late and he was told to go, you know, go to the bar. Um, You know, uh, he just got off the plane. The other actors will be there. They've just finished shooting and you can meet them and say hello. So he arrived and went, oh, hello, everybody. Get me two gin and tonics, for heaven's sakes. I'm exhausted. That flight was so late. I'm just going to go to my room, have a quick shower. I have one of the gin and tonics now. Keep the others for me like that. And off he went. Now, Terence Stamp was there. Terence Stamp looked after him and said, who was that? They said, oh, that's David Bamber. So, is he in the film? They said, yes, yeah. Who's he playing? said, well, he's playing Hitler. It was a big pause. And he said, what? Adolf Hitler. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, he was brilliant, David, but he didn't look like a Hitler. So I like to think I I don't necessarily look like a Cecil Rhodes. You played the gay Tory MP in Russell T. Oh, it's a sin. It's a sin. That period when, you know, you were uh, publicly celibate, as it was described. Yeah, yeah. And then this show was all about AIDS, HIV, which cut like a scythe through yeah. a whole generation. It, it reminded me of, of, of that time because it so happened that the year I left university, 1981, was the year that the virus landed in mm. England, really. And I can remember with all my gay friends, we moved to London and with my... You know, with my partner, my lover from Cambridge, we shared a, a flat in Chelsea. We were lovers in everything except physically, really. We had been physically lovers, but I'd sort of... He was so keen to ex- experiment and explore the world, and so he did. Well, you must have been 21 or yeah, 22. Yeah, exactly. So he went out to the clubs and things like that, and I was far more interested in work, and I just wasn't... I hated the gay scene. I hated going into gay clubs. I hated being stared at, those eyes raking up and down as you walked in and then turning away with obvious contempt and lack of interest. And I, I couldn't bear the, you know, the loud music and the dancing of heaven and places like that. There were a few little pubs where you could sit and chat but the fact it was just not about conversation or meeting people it was just about looks it made me very unhappy so I was much much more content throwing myself into work but all my friends uh, were on the scene and 
they started to tell me about, have you heard about this new gay flu and uh, GRID, as it was called, gay-related immune deficiency, and then slowly the name AIDS sort of came to the top of the heap as the preferred description. And, um, and then over the course of the next 10 years, I watched many of them die in horrible ways. I'd go and visit them at the Broderick Ward in, uh, in the Middlesex Hospital, yeah. which has now been pulled down and is um, flat. It was uh, unbelievable to see these emaciated, etiolated people with their parents sitting, sobbing you, on the edge of their beds. Do you ever think that you, through celibacy, self-enforced celibacy, that you dodged it? Oh, absolutely. But precisely that is what I'm saying. They went off into the scene. I went into work and sort of was not interested in having partners, not because of the reason of AIDS. It wasn't fear of AIDS. It was just a fear of that scene and not liking it and just feeling inadequate sexually and physically. The great Jonathan Meads was a features editor for, for the Tatler. Yes, and he was. at some point in the 80s, he called me up and said, I'm doing an article which is collating pieces from lots of people who who don't do certain things. And I come, Gavin Stamp doesn't go on holiday or Brian Sewell doesn't drive a car. Actually, Brian Sewell loved cars, whichever way around <laughs> yeah, yeah. it was. And is there anything you don't do? I thought for a bit and said, I, but I, I like doing everything. I certainly go on holidays and I like... Oh, well, the sex, I don't really like that. <laughs> He said, that'll do. <laughs> oh, look at this. Here's gorgeous. Look at that. Is that rhubarb with it? It is. Oh, marvelous. We are deep in the season. Yes, we are. Would you like any tea or coffee with your dessert? I'll have a coffee. Yes, coffee. Just a plain black coffee would be lovely. Large espresso, please. Thank you. As we're coming towards the end, uh, yeah. the last thing of yours that I watched was a video you just narrated on quantum computing. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, it's 12 minutes, mm. and it makes sense as you're watching. Like a lot of these things. Did you understand what you were reading? Well, anybody who, who isn't a particle physicist or computer scientist can try and grasp the meaning, the corollary, what the, what the outcome of, of, of a certain amount of theoretical physics could be. I liked what the story, as it were, of it was. It would be an act of outrageous arrogance to say, oh, I get, you know, which is what a lot of the sort of um, Deepak Chopra type things do. They say, ah, you see, quantum mechanics says that things are not knowable, therefore there's room for me to talk bullshit for four hours oh about, God. you know, all that sort yeah. of thing. Um, and, and that's one separate problem. But nonetheless, if you follow the technology that, that follows it, you might be able to create um, a computing system that would be infinitely more powerful, almost almost infinitely more powerful than the one we have. I always thought of you and the great late great John Diamond um, <laughs> together because you were both tech heads. We yeah. were. We were both. I mean, he was brilliant, John Diamond. For those who don't remember him, um, he was a, a Times journalist. He was a very early user of online systems, and he tried to get Times readers to join him in these online systems before, really, the internet was available to anybody. He was married to Nigella Lawson uh, and uh, uh, then died of uh, of cancer, very sadly, at quite a young age. But he, he Am I right that you brilliant. used to talk tech to each other? Yes, you? very much so, yeah. Oh, this Great is a, almost a Radio 1 1980s-style segue, but you've had your brush as well with mm. cancer, yeah. prostate cancer. And you... <laughs> I, can, I can recommend to anyone the salutary experience of sitting in a chair opposite a consultant and the consultant saying, well, there's no other way to say this. You, you do have cancer. You know, it's just those... 
that phrase, you know, you do have cancer. Did you rehearse it in your mind? Oh, yes. Because you knew that that was... I knew it was a possibility. I knew, knew, you know, there'd been something on a scan uh, and it seemed unlikely it would be anything else. So, well, I didn't know what it would mean or what the result would be, but, of course, that C word is is enormous. Um, And (laughs) it just reminds me of another joke. Um, Someone said uh, something about the C word. And... (laughs) My friend said, what, dyslexia? Which I thought was rather good. good. What was your feeling about the military metaphors that people always use around cancer when it was applied to you? I mean, like other friends who've who've had it, I've always hated this idea of battling and fighting. I've hated it. And it isn't a battle. It's a submission. You submit to the work of the high priests of this particular craft, the doctors, the oncologists, um, the surgeons, they are the ones you submit to, you literally let go. One thing you don't do is, what am I battling? How do I battle it? Tell me how, what weapons do I choose? I don't, I give that choice to others. Did you find that easy? Yes, very. I guess what we're saying about technology and things also comes down to a realisation of mine, and it's a, it's a vulgar preference, but I love virtuosity. I love people who are incredibly good at things. People who do things well, I just love watching it. Well, I'm going to say on behalf of everybody that I'm delighted that you had virtuosic surgeons and doctors um, to look after you uh, so that we could get together for this. And so I can finally say, Stephen Fry, thank you for letting me take you out to lunch. Thank you for taking me, Jay. It's been a glorious pleasure. Would you like a chocolate? I certainly would. (laughs) Handmade truffle. A glorious pleasure indeed. Thank you so much to Stephen for joining me, even if it did take me a few years to get you to the table. And also a big thank you to everyone at Wilton's in St James's for making us feel so welcome. If you love the show, do please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. And um, thank you to all of you who have so far told their friends about us. If you haven't, please spread the word, share, comment, rate us five stars. It can't hurt, can it? It really does help us to keep bringing you more of these podcasts. Out to Lunch is a Something Else and Jay Rayner production. The music was written, arranged and performed by me, Jay Rayner and Robert Rickenberg. The recording engineer was Gulliver Tickle and the mix engineer is Josh Gibbs. Assistant producers are Onya Das and Bethany Hocken. The producer is Selena Ream and the executive producer is Darby Doris. Next time it's stand-up comedian and virtuoso musician, often at the same time, it's Bill Bailey. This will make you laugh, perhaps. I was asked to be the face of Visit Britain in 2020. <laughs>